Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Napoli is shit, Nico. Get over it. It is Thursday, which means it's time for the Front 3 podcast, UEFA Champions League group stage review, Q&A and Manchester Derby preview edition with me, Adam Baldwin, the one and only Nico Morales. The one and only. The one and only, aka Judas, as I'm now calling you after the scandal that emerged on Monday. But the less said about that, the better. Chris Hennage is also here from a windy northern England. Where exactly are you, Chris? Um, I'm at home. I was walking walking the dog for a little bit there. Oh, it's windy up there. You'll hear that later, listeners. And finally, Statman Dave is back. Were you referring to uh, what was known as Poogate uh, before, Adam? Yes, Poogate. I think that's a that's a, a nice, tasteful way to put it. Um, if you're wondering what we're talking about, go back and listen to Monday's podcast, or you can check out the video evidence of my innocence against Nico's accusations on Twitter. Viral gastroenteritis. That's what you. That's what you got. Where'd you prove it was me? That's all I'm saying. Did the doctors confirm it was the meat and chips I bought you? Yeah, they said it was a sketchy kebab, paid for by Adam Boltwood, some some guy named Adzi. You got me, on Nico. Um, we won't get dragged into all that because we've got so much to talk about today. Of course, as I mentioned, we're going to be reviewing the UEFA Champions League action, including Liverpool's Fab Four, Manchester City's first defeat in 24 games. And with five teams through to the knockout stages, are England the dominant force in Europe once again? We'll also be talking the Europa League with some big names dropping into the competition after being knocked out of the Champions League. While also in part two, we'll be previewing the huge Manchester derby this weekend and picking our combined Manchester United, Manchester City 11. Before all that good stuff, as always on a Thursday, it's time for the whole of the week. The listener of the week, our favourite review from iTunes. Remember, if you want to be whole of the week, all you have to do is rate and review the front three on iTunes. All you have to do is click the link in the description of this very podcast for your chance to win a lovely box of Ferrero Rocher. That's right. The whole of the week will win those coveted chocolates. So let's get to this week's free nominees. Um, first up, we've got Will B17 from the UK, who entitled his five-star review, not too shabby. Alonso, 
Uh, this is a well put together, thought provoking podcast that allows to provide the excellent talking points and analysis that Match of the Day fails to deliver. Adam is the voice of the podcast. His hosting skills are underrated as he allows everyone to voice their opinions well. Hmm. He is the deep lying playmaker of the pod. Dave and Nico provide excellent analysis of both football tactics and the game in a wider sense. Chris could talk about any issue in football and make it seem like the most vital and important thing in the game. I greatly enjoy his explanation of key talking points. He and Nico talk about the MLS in a way that makes it seem exciting and fresh. Lawrence is a cuck. Cheers, lads. Okay. Uh, that was nice from Will. Thank you very much. Uh, we have another one here from Doc. I do not need to hear the other two. Uh, well, yeah, I, you know, they're not bad, actually. They're pretty good. We've got Doc97 here from Ireland. I love it already. Kunisatasu, etc. Uh, brilliant body says, five stars. Adam's voice is silk. Lawrence is devilishly handsome. Chris holds fantastic knowledge about the beautiful game. The stat father spews out stats superbly. And Nico is all right. One of my favourite podcasts, says Doc. So uh, kind words for everyone apart from Nico. Uh, and finally, James Dundas from the UK said, this is the perfect balance of banter combined with tactical football knowledge. I like all the members of the group, but especially Dave, aka the stat man, as he has a great tactical knowledge and explains it in the most in-depth tactical viewpoints. So uh, yeah, three very nice reviews. All very kind words, all five stars as well. So thank you very much. Chris, you're still sticking with Will, not too shabby Alonso, as your winner this week? I think I will go <laughs> contestant number two. Oh, wow. So Doc97, who uh, who slighted Nico, has, uh, I'm sure that's unrelated <laughs> to why Chris has picked him as the winner. In, in no way coincidence. And he's no from Ireland as well. Get behind that. That's unbelievable, that. It's got to be the third guy, obviously. He speaks by yeah, him. Just because, yeah. Just he singled <laughs> you out for praise, I understand. Uh, Doc97, slide into the DMs. Out the front for you at Adam Bowen, and we'll get you sent some lovely Ferrero Rocher just in time for Christmas. Let's move swiftly on then to the football, to the good stuff. We've got to start, Chris, with Liverpool. All they needed was a draw, but they hammered Spartak Moscow 7-0, making it two 7-0 wins in the group stages. They are, of course, now the highest-scoring English team in the group stage, in the histories, in the competition's history. Impressive stuff from Jurgen Klopp's men, Chris. Yeah, massively. So this the the first team, I think, to ever score seven twice in the group stages. And, and yet, yeah, amazingly, uh, PSG are the top scoring side in in the um, in the group stages with 25. I, th- I think what you saw really was was a few things at play here. Firstly, for me, Klopp has, has really refined the rotation policy at Liverpool of late. I think that's why you've seen them have such strong form in the Premier League. The fact that they scored what is it now something like seven? Let's uh, think quick maths. 14 um, in the last three games at, at Stoke Brighton and now Spark. Good quick maths. So, good quick maths. Yeah, that quick. What's that reference? I don't know. Um, but yes, I think that that proves the the efficiency um, of of the rotation policy, if nothing else. And at the same time, I, I think Liverpool's greatest strength is their attacking. It's it's always going to. Um, you look at Naby Keita signing in the summer. I think they'll probably go for a centre back in the summer as well. But right now, between Mane, Salah, Firmino, who I don't think actually gets as much credit as he deserves, I think. Uh, it's very easy to talk about Salah and, and Sane because they do get a lot of the goals and continue. But for me, I think Firmino is just as, as if not more important. Um, and for me, it paints a, a very obvious situation for them in the knockout stages, which is if the attack clicks, I don't know who can stop them genuinely wow. in, in that group of, of those who've gone through. The caveat you have to give with that is the fact that their defence is, is nowhere near that level. Um, and so it almost... Uh, 
not not Monaco per se, but but a, a similar sort of that game between Monaco and Man City, where it was two sides that seemed to have forgot how to defend but knew how to attack. That could very well be how Liverpool's knockout competition um, transpires because they'll have a number of games in which they'll fancy themselves as attackers. And I think, look, this is a good season for them to find that kind of form because I think you look at a lot of the established elite, they're not having the greatest of competition. Um, I thought Barcelona and Juventus were fairly unconvincing. Bayern managed to beat PSG, but prior to that, I didn't think they were, were setting the world alight. Um, that may change with a few months of, of your pankis at the helm. But I think this is one of those seasons where actually you could see a team that you don't necessarily consider a favourite for the competition when it's, it's drawn in the summer or, or whenever, now come to the fore and, and potentially win the thing. Mm. And Liverpool have just a chance, I think, because of that attacking lineup. What do you make of that, Dave? I mean, that Fab Four, as they're now known, uh, could tear any team to shreds? Ben Davies asks, how far do you think Liverpool can go in this competition now, Dave? As soon as they face Bayern Munich, Real Madrid or Barcelona or anyone like that, they'll get torn apart on the break and that's what will happen. Watching Bayern Munich against PSG, Bayern Munich were, were absolutely awesome. I was very impressed how they set up and for me, they now go to favourites with Barcelona maybe to win it. I think Liverpool have got a very good attack. I think that'll bail them out of certain situations. But I think if you come to someone like Juve, you'll just get picked apart. And unfortunately, they won't be able to deal with that. They're not going to be able to deal with how Juve can be both pragmatic and then they can counter-attack well, or how Real Madrid can do that, or how Bayern Munich can do that. You see how Bayern Munich overloaded the PSG left-hand side with James Rodriguez from central midfield out wide. It was so impressive. And if they did that to Liverpool, Liverpool are not going to have a chance. Thinking on that right-hand side, you know... um, Salah doesn't really defend. He doesn't really come back and, and join the midfield. He likes to stay quite high, which is a counter-attacking option. But if you've got three players there, Frank Ribéry staying wide, David Alaba providing the overlap, and then Hamez also overlapping as well, you know, someone like a Bayern will absolutely destroy Liverpool. I think Liverpool are going to get to a stage where they'll play a good, a good team, and unfortunately their defence will let them down. As Chris sort of mentioned, their attack is absolutely awesome. Defensively, they're just not good enough in a million years to go anywhere near winning the Champions League. The team that's going to win the Champions League this season is going to be the team that's the best defensively. Manchester United, perhaps. Um, LFC Joe 96 writes in, Nico. He says, do we, in brackets, Liverpool, have the best attack in the world? Bloody hell. They score, they score seven goals against the, CS, the Spartak Moscow team. And I think they're geniuses. They're the best <laughs> attack in the world, Nico. Isn't that right? No, I don't think so. I think that's a stretch. Oh, I think, oh, okay. as Chris Chris and Dave mentioned, they're very uh, talented offensively, but I think they're actually talented offensively. Um, and Lawrence has touched on this about a million times, and I've I've sort of been looking at it with different tactical guys, and we've we've kind of talked about it a little bit in the in the sense that you know their attack does what they do so well, and I think what causes these games, uh, these seven nil type games, is their ability to create transition in games. So if you look at some of the top coaches in the Premier League, how they like to attack, Pep Guardiola creates space by you know sucking teams out vertically through a buildup or overloading certain parts of the pitch. That's how he likes to create space. Jurgen Klopp likes to create transition because he knows that his attackers are very good in transitional situations. The way that Liverpool do that is because they keep a large amount of space 
space specifically between the midfield line and the defensive line. What that does is that when the other team is in possession, they see that space between those two lines and say, that's a weakness. That's something we can exploit. So it provokes the long ball. And once the long ball is there, Liverpool purposely keep that space farther than it needs to be so that they can provoke that. And then they compress that space, win the ball back, and that creates an element of transition in which they can thrive. That's an extremely risky thing to do. And as we saw against Sevilla, better players really good players can exploit that space regardless of how well you compress or counterpress or whatever you want to do in that space. It's rolling the dice and it's going to create a ton of games for Liverpool where they come out on top because they are a superior quality of team. But as Dave is saying, I think that's a really risky tactic tactic against teams that have a Kingsley Coman or a Thiago Alcantara or players like that that can you give them a moment and they're going to be able to do anything regardless of whether that was intended or not. So I think Liverpool are very good, but I think since so much of their attack relies on that rolling the dice element of this, you know, defensive offensive tactic, I don't think it can pay off at the at the highest level. That's my opinion. Mm, we'll see in the knockout stages then Liverpool topping Group E in the end with Sevilla also going through in second place while in Group F Manchester City finished top despite defeat to Shakhtar Donetsk in their final group game their first defeat in 22 games 24 24 games even more impressive um, what are we thinking Nico pep out surely <laughs> surely um, no, no, no. It was it was a good game. Uh, I think, like I mentioned before, this is uh, this is Arsenal, Napoli, Shakhtar. Now have sort of provided the blueprint as to how you should beat Manchester City. You can sit deep and you can try to create things off set pieces. That's perfectly fine. But I think the most realistic way that you can actively try to do that without the use of set pieces, which is sort of a, a difficult thing to do, especially if Pep Guardiola and the team is trying to limit that amount uh, or the amount of set pieces that you get during a game. Um, I think that the way to do it is sort of be as compact as they are, hold a, an extremely high line, and try to high-press them because the the build-up that Manchester City have is probably the weakest of their offensive tactics. If you try, try to go toe-to-toe with them and, and be compact in your own box and try to let them or ask of them to break you down, I think that's a recipe for disaster. So I think if you target their build-up, if you target certain players in their build-up, Fernandinho tends to receive a lot of sort of wayward, difficult-to-deal-with passes. And a lot of what Manchester City do is, you know, since they're stretching the field so much, there's a lot of space to be exploited there. And I think Arsenal did that relatively well. They just didn't take their chances when they did get to play us. So I, I think it's a blueprint for how to beat Manchester City, but is it something to, to worry about, especially against a Manchester United team that doesn't like to high press because anything that has to do with risk is you know opposite to Mourinho um it's not that much to worry about not that not that many teams can can high press that well so it's it's a weakness that is very difficult to to exploit I think oh we'll come on to how Manchester United are going to approach that game in part two don't you worry elsewhere in the Champions League though for the English clubs Chelsea finished as runners-up in Group C after failing to get a win over Atletico Madrid at Stamford Bridge. One all, it finished there, meaning Chelsea, finishing in second place, can play one of three teams, Besiktas, PSG or Barcelona. Obviously, there's one team they'd probably rather play, although Besiktas have impressed in the Champions League group stages this season. Out of PSG and Barcelona, though, Dave, if you're Antonio Conte, which team would you rather face? Um... Probably PSG. Wasn't impressed at all by how they 
press and how they yeah. built their attacks up against Bayern, they got really picked off. It was I was expecting a lot from PSG because of the signings and they finally got a squad together now that, that works on paper. But they played this sort of lopsided 4-4-2. It was more like a Brazilian 4-3-3 where you, you know, you've got someone like a Jarzinho um, out wide uh, and you know, it's lopsided to one wing. Neymar was staying very high on, high on the left and then Mbappe was tucking in. But you also had Julian Draxler in there who was playing a position that I don't even know what he was playing. It looked like at some points he was playing as a left midfielder. At other points he was playing central midfield. He just was anonymous. And this team that, he's, that again, Emery's built, it's just got no balance. You know, they were pressing with Verratti or Rabiot was pressing the opposition centre-back. That's mad. When you don't have any defensive midfielders in your team, your two defensive midfielders should be sitting very, very deep. They should not be the ones that are instigating the press. And they were doing that against Bayern. And again, as I mentioned, the, the rotation of the, on the left-hand side for Bayern was really good. James basically created the first goal with a fantastic whip ball uh, into the box for Tolisso. And I think the, another one of the goals as well is massively, you know, the massive contribution. I think he took on Dani Alves and Dani Alves just fell over. That's another big thing. Dani Alves did so well for Juve last season playing as a right midfield and not a right back. Dani Alves is a right back at, in the, at the top, top level of the game, I think is done. I think you can play him and you can get away with playing someone behind him and playing sort of two right backs on that one side and interchanging, obviously, with Licksteiner. But what PSG are doing is they're playing with Mbappe. Mbappe isn't defending. So Alves is so exposed, and that's what they did. They overloaded him sometimes three to one. And with the likes of Talisa in the middle, you know, and going back to Chelsea, what Chelsea have built now is a 3 5 2 that's good on the break. And even Hazard and Murata, you know, is two man strike force. They'll hit PSG for fun. They'll sit deep. They'll have five at the back. They'll have three in midfield. They'll probably play three workers, Conte will away from home. You know, Kante, maybe a Bakayoko, a Danny Drinkwater. And they'll just hit them on the counter attack. And the space that you can uh, abuse, especially Nazard if he drifts left, uh, you know, into his usual old school position on the left wing against someone like PSG, they would beat them. Um, you think Barcelona is going to be a lot harder at that task because obviously it's Messi, it's Valverde, it's pressing defensively, they're better. Um, and I watched Besiktas uh, Leipzig yesterday. Leipzig should have won that game. They keep uh, Besiktas keep made like 10 saves. Um, they're going to hit a point, Besiktas, again, like Liverpool, where a team will just undress them. Um, so for, for, for Chelsea, obviously the best draw is Besiktas, but then second to that, I'd definitely go PSG. And Barca would be a terrible time to play Barca right now, to be quite honest. Why, why so? I just think that they're looking good. They're, they're looking really professional. You know, you, you watch the game that they played against Valencia. Um, you know, they went a goal down and they won the game 2-1. And it was a brilliant performance from um, Jordi Alba, a player, again, that I criticised at the start of the season. He was awful last year. This season, he looks back to that form where Messi's picking him out. He's, he's clean for on goal on that left-hand side. There's a lot of width in that situation. Usman Dembele will be back for, the, for February. You know, Dembele in Barcelona versus Dembele out of the Barcelona team gives you a lot in terms of dribbling, gives you a lot in terms of what Dembele can do on the ball. Link that with Messi. We've not even seen where that's going to go. There's going to be three months and then that's going to be the Champions League knockout stages. So for Chelsea to have to deal with Messi and deal with all these things, Messi's the type of player that would maybe face up this back three and just go through it. And I think that's the situation that Chelsea needs to be aware of, that they can sit off in certain situations and it's good to take that approach. But other games, they may need to be a little bit more aggressive and going back to what they did last season, having the 3-4-3 and being pressing from the front against certain sides. So for Conte, it's all about his tactics, but at the moment they look good. Mm. Um, and it, you know, I've been impressed. 
Of course, another team who've impressed in the Champions League this season, Spurs. The mighty Tottenham Hotspur topped the group of death, Group H, let's not forget, uh, which also, of course, included Real Madrid and Borussia Dortmund. They beat Apple Nicosia 3-0 last night, a run out, well, a chance to impress for some uh, some fringe players, Fernando Llorente grabbing his first goal for the club, uh, George Kudu as well, making a push to at least potentially start on the bench against Stoke on the weekend. Um... Also, finishing on 16 points with that win, more than any other team managed in the group stage. Uh, perhaps most notable for, however, the game was uh, Danny Rose, looking to have a little bit of a spat with Maurizio Pochettino. Of course, it was all blown out of proportion. He was withdrawn in the second half after cutting his eye. Maurizio Pochettino explaining it wasn't worth the risk. Danny Rose clearly didn't want to be taken off. Um, but Danny Rose coming out to say it had all been blown out of proportion. You know, the media was trying to make the most of it. He was explaining, of course, he was unhappy, unhappy to have been taken off, etc. But, you know, it, it was no big deal. Still doesn't look like he's the biggest fan of Maurizio Pochettino. Still expecting him to probably leave next summer. Um, but that's fine, though, Dave, because we can just swap him with Luke Shaw, who's back. He was the man of the match for Manchester United against CSKA as they came back from one goal down to win 2-1. <laughs> he was man of the match. Apparently so. Yes, we, watch, we, watch some of these, we watch some of these performances with really rose-tinted glasses on as soon as he come back. Oh, Luke Shaw's the answer to everything. Um, Luke Shaw's not the answer to everything. And I think that he's sort of shown that there's going to be a part of his career now where if he doesn't work, he's, he's done and um, you know he'll slip down the pecking order. I thought he played well. I didn't think he was man of the match. Marcus Rashford was man of the match by a country mile. Marcus Rashford is an unbelievable talent. I think that's the big thing. that You look at the talent of Luke Shaw, you look at the talent of Marcus Rashford, you say it's probably quite similar in terms of their position. There's one guy that works his socks off. There's one guy that would fight for his team, will play any position for his manager, would do any job on the pitch for his manager. And there's one guy that seems to be not working hard. Behind the scenes, obviously, we don't know what's going on. Maybe he does need a move back under Pochettino. He just needs to play football. And I don't think it's at Manchester United. I don't think that there's ever going to be this step here. You know, we're seeing this season, this is the season where Luke Shaw should be Man United's left fullback. But Ashley Young is. And Ashley Young's been brilliant this year. Ashley Young showed Luke Shaw what you need to do to be a Man United left back. You know, you need to be working hard. You need to be a positive in, in every single environment. And the strange thing with Luke Shaw I was chatting to the lads after the game in the pub. And it was sort of like, what's wrong with Luke Shaw? Like, he's obviously got a dietitian at Man United. He obviously is got a fitness guy that works on his fitness. Um, that obviously, you know, he's in training every every single day. His job is to be a footballer. The, the guy should be absolutely ripped. And the strange thing is, he's not. He looks, it looks, obviously this is just a complete observation. The only thing I can think about of why he's carrying this extra extra weight, why he's a little bit chunky, is maybe he's hitting the town. Mm, I'm not sure there's any evidence for that. No, no, it, but it's just like, why Why is Luke Shaw, why is his body shape like it is, I think? Obviously there's a lot to do with that, um, that I may not know in terms of physiology and all this type of thing, mm. but it just seems a bit strange. I thought he looked uh, fitter on Tuesday night, though. I think, is that his first start since... Uh, April or, or May or something like that. Um, I thought most Manchester United fans seemed to think, you know, he looked in better physical shape. He looked to have the beating of the attacker he was up against in a sprint race, at least. Well, this is the, this is the big thing. It's it's funny watching Luke Shaw because he does things like that where he'll go past an opponent, but then he'll come back on himself. And I think it's honestly, Louis van Gaal has kind of ruined a few Man United players. Like Ander Herrera is another one. Too many square passes. And Luke Shaw, when he hits the final third at some times always comes back on himself. And he, if he can't eradicate that and not get confidence in that situation, 
then he's never going to be a top left-back. He's never going to be the world's best left-back. And that's why Man United bought him to be the world's best best left-back. Other situations, you know, the chance that he had in that first half, the ball comes over from the right wing. I think Valencia crosses it in. And this, this, this ball's bouncing. It's across the ground. You're hitting this first time. The only chance you're scoring from this, this situation is hitting it first time. Takes a touch. The defender gets over and blocks the shot. And then the second time it comes over, he hits it first time. It's this situation where he needs to start believing in himself whether Mourinho doesn't believe him, whether the players don't believe in him, he needs to believe in himself. And that, that single thing of confidence and, and, and believing that you're best, if you haven't got that confidence and that swagger and that almost arrogance as a footballer for Manchester United or as a footballer that wants to win the Ballon d'Or or win the Champions League, if you don't have that arrogance in any position, you're not going to get there. And yes, it's confidence and yes, it's psychological and less. There's loads of different factors in there that you could talk about, but he needs that confidence. He needs to believe that, look, I'm Luke Shaw. I'm going to take you on. I'm going to get a cross in and I'm going to score a goal. And, and this is the, the approach that he needs to take. I think fitness-wise, maybe there's something else he can do. And maybe psychologically, he needs to just get back on and being like, I am the Luke Shaw that played for Southampton. I am the Luke Shaw that attempted three dribbles per game and completed 2.13 dribbles per game <laughs> in his Southampton days. And that I is what you Luke want Shaw. back. Because again, you look, at, you look at his dribble stats. Again, it was, I think it was one yesterday that he completed and didn't create a chance, had two crosses in the game. The problem with that is you flip that to Ashley Young. Ashley Young's grabbing assists. He's consistently beating his, his opponent in the dribble, and he's getting crosses into the box. Yes, they're not very accurate. Yes, sometimes you know he should slow down a little bit and find his man, but he's still getting to that zone over and over and over and over again. And Luke Shaw's not doing that, and that is the difference between the two players. I think defensively, there's not much in it. I think mm-hmm. they're quite similar in a defensive sense, so it's going forward, and that's where Ashley Young completely hammers Luke Shaw at the moment. But I want Luke Shaw to succeed, and I think he will succeed. But it just right now, it just feels a bit odd. I love the Statman Dave football podcast. Yeah, it's great. It's a good podcast. Uh, how much do you love Ashley Young? Where's he on your list of most loved people in the world? Is he like... The reason why I love Ashley Young is because it's a stick I can beat Stephen Housen with now. Yeah, I mean... So he's it... almost become... Ashley Young's almost become a weapon for me. <laughs> that is as good a reason as any. Um, anyway... That is five teams, five English teams that are through to the UEFA Champions League knockout stages with a first nation England to have five different teams qualify for the last 16 of the Champions League since 2003-2004. This is also the first time since 2006-2007 that four English sides have finished first in their respective groups in a single Champions League campaign. England a back, Chris. Back to the 2008-2012 glory days when we ruled Europe. We're going to win the Champions League. We're going to win the World Cup. I think you look at that back end of the last decade, that's when, when for me, English clubs were, were really dominant because you had, I think it was something like three of the four semi-finalists at one stage were, were English. You have to be careful to, to profess the return of English sides just yet because they've got the knockout stages. And I think uh, Pep Guardiola makes a really good point about this, that, you know, it's, it's almost pointless to, to predict favourites at this stage because come February, your team could be a shambles or you could have rectified your situation. I mean, say, look at Dortmund, for example, um, who, who exit the group stages as a total mess. Come February, they could be in the Europa League and, and back to firing where they need to be. So it's a bit of a difficult one. It's, um, it's not one I'd readily predict, but what I think you can say, based off these group stages is how well each English side has equipped themselves. Um, you look at Chelsea, who had a very difficult group in, in Roma and Atletico. I think Tottenham's group had its own pitfalls. Dortmund, obviously, very much um, 
you know, self-combusted. Whereas to go to, to Real Madrid and take four points from two games, I think that's a fantastic return for, for them and Pochettino, and it's something to be proud of. Um, even, you know, Manchester United, again, you would say, well, you know, Benfica were nothing short of a mess. That's why they finished bottom. But Basel, CSKA, they presented some difficult tests. I mean, they didn't get points in Basel, but they did at CSKA. And I think ultimately, yeah, we can't be certainly proud of how English sides have, have finished in the group stages because I think they've definitely earned top spot. Um, I don't think it's purely a case of, of oppositions, you know, falling over themselves and, and allowing English teams to sneak in. It's interesting because the Premier League has always been one of the richest, if not the richest league in the world. It's always been able to attract the best players, but potentially not the best coaches. Do you think the reason we're seeing five teams progress from one country, from England, which is which is rare in the Champions League, as I mentioned with that stat earlier, is because of the coaching in this country now? Right now we've got Mourinho, we've got Guardiola, we've got Klopp, Pochettino. We've got some of the best coaches in the world in England, Chris, and that's why there's been this resurgence in Europe this season? I don't think it's a coincidence that in the same week that Sam Allardyce, Big Pards and, and you know, Moisey get back in the game that English sides pick up, don't get me wrong. Very true. Yeah, I think I think the interesting thing is you, you look at the way English sides have almost started to prioritise coaches. I think that's what's been interesting. Um, you have Liverpool going for Klopp, who I would say, comparative to the coaches they had in the previous five years... He undeniably has the best pedigree, better than Rodgers, Hodgson, all these people in terms of what he's achieved. Um, the same applies to Guardiola. I think City realised that it's one thing to buy good players or great players, but if they're not being taught by a great manager, then it's all inconsequential. And even Manchester United, you know, they have kind of lurched from coach to coach in the wake of Ferguson, but I think it was always going to look like that because of the, the longevity that he enjoyed. But they've, again, they've gone for what they feel is the best option. Um, and I think you, you have to give teams credit for, for that because it, it's identifying a problem and it's, it's solving it in the best way possible. And I think English sides have definitely benefited from that. Um, I'm curious to what the legacy is. That's almost where my mind is at now because you look at Klopp and I think he has... Probably some time left in him at Liverpool. I don't think he goes in the summer. I'd say Guardiola the same. Um, I'm not so sure of Conte. I think Mourinho would love to stay at Manchester United. But there's always that third season hanging over him and how that transpires based off his, his previous career. So yeah, I think that's the, the interesting next thing to consider is what legacy do these coaches then leave and, and who, you know, way down the line potentially fills that space. Is it going to be English coaches or is it going to be another slew of the elite from from across Europe what do you make of that Nico I mean it's an interesting point Chris makes these things are cyclical um, of course this is the first time English teams are potentially returning to prominence in Europe since 2008 2012 as Chris mentioned but will this cycle only last as long as these elite coaches are present in the English game yeah I think there's definitely a correlation at the same time I'd like to say that 
maybe in the past when English clubs haven't enjoyed the the greatest amount of success in the Champions League. Like Chris mentioned, maybe uh, when people pointed to that period of being a great time in English football, um, when England had like three uh, or of four of the the finalists, you know, a, a couple years back. Spain has has done things recently. There was an all German final a couple of years ago. So these things tend to come in waves, and it's not. It, it's I think it's a conjunction of both talent. Um, that tends to stay in those countries as well as the coaches. And I don't, I, I don't, I, I often think that that time where people were talking about the downfall of English football, the, the Premier League isn't really that English. I mean, it has English nuances to it. It has certain uh, elements to its game and to its natural, um, you know, league characteristics <clears throat> that coincide with the, the culture of English football. But I would say that that they're not necessarily uh, as intertwined as we think. So I think in the time that maybe we were talking about it as a huge point of concern, it was a little bit a little bit overblown. Um, just like now, you know, we can't attribute everything to just the style of English football being back. Because if you look at the most successful English teams that have gone through in the group stages, Pep Guardiola's Manchester City, I think no one would qualify as really an English team besides the fact that the team resides in England. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I, I think is a little bit silly, um, but you know, it's good. What are your thoughts, Dave? Do you think an English team can go and win it this year or are they going to crash and burn in the last 16 and disappoint us all? I think that they there's still teams there that I'd say at a higher level than than English clubs. You know, you Real Madrid, you Bayern Munich, Barcelona's, Juventus. But it's good. It's uh, you know it's progress, and I think that's the thing for English football. It's in a very transitional phase from the last time that there was you know teams competing back in 2011 with Manchester United and Ferguson. So it's taken time, but it's, it's on the sort of rise again. And with the likes of Atletico dropping to the Europa League with Diego Costa coming in. In January, there's a favourite that's just dropped out. So if there was a time for English teams to do it, it'd be now. The only problem is, obviously, teams like Manchester United, teams like Chelsea, they're quite restricted on who they can draw because of the performance of English teams, which means that they'll hit one of the big boys. So it's, it, there's a balance, but I think it's good for English football, and it is to do with the coaching and the import of foreign managers and the money and, and so forth. Um, you know, Wage spend is a big thing in football. It correlates with results, and unfortunately, the Premier League is spending the most money, so will be should be the most successful in Europe. The question is, though, as John Shin writes in on Twitter, which of these English teams is going to make it furthest in the competition, Nico? Well, let's see. We got Manchester City. We got United, Mm -hmm. Tottenham. Fill in the rest of the blanks for me. Liverpool and who else? Chelsea. Okay. So I think of those, like Dave is saying, I think he makes a lot of sense in the in the in the in the sense that he says the team that is, you know, maybe focuses defensively and can break in these situations and let somebody t- t- somebody else take the onus of possession. I think Chelsea are pretty darn good, and I think they have a pretty solid chance of doing that because they. They, the reason that they purchased Bakioko in the summer is to continue to perpetuate uh, that, you know, is it essentially, and I don't mean to be reductive, but it's like two, having two uh, N'Golo Contes in the center of the pitch. He's very good at winning the ball back. He's very aggressive. He likes to take players on in the middle of the pitch. He likes those, you know, low quality dribbles, and he's very good at it. And I was very impressed. When you're not going to be impressed with, with Bakioko is when you dominate a game, when uh, you need your midfielders to make incisive passes, when you need them to do those those sort of things. I think he's a very good player outside of that. And I think 
if Chelsea can manage the game state situations where they are dominating in that sense, when they can, you know, let's say they draw a PSG, then the onus would not be on them to dominate possession and they could hit them on the counter and they'd probably win both games three nil. So I think in that sense, Chelsea have, have a really, really good shot at being, you know, semi-finalists or even finalists because they are a very competent attacking team uh, when they can when they don't have to be on the wall. Adam, who do you reckon will go farthest in the Champions League? Hey, it's a great question, Nico. Um, <laughs> I think I agree with your assertions there in line with what, what David said. I'd love to say Spurs. I'd love to say Liverpool teams who can hit on the counter. But I think, as Dave said, that who knows? Until February, we, we don't really know. Maybe Toby Alderweire will be back then. That will give Spurs more defensive solidity. Maybe Liverpool would have bought Virgil van Dijk. Who knows? Um, spurious prediction, though. Let's, I think you got to go for Manchester City. Probably the best team in the Premier League. Pep Guardiola's got the pedigree. We'll go for City. Um, but we have to talk about some of the big names who were knocked out of the Champions League last night and drop into the Europa League. Some huge names. Let's start with Borussia Dortmund, who, of course, finished third in Group H, below Spurs, below Real Madrid. I mean, you recorded a bonus podcast with Stefan Buschko earlier in the season, Nico, so you're probably best placed to answer this, but I mean, it's quickly turning into quite a disastrous season for Peter Bosch's side. I think there was, a, as uh, Mr. Buschko sort of touched on, there was a little bit of overperformance in the in the first few games of the season, and I think that was a... That was something that was probably positive because not many were 100% sure or maybe 100% confident in Peter Bosch's ability to transition from a club like Ajax to, to Dortmund, handling the different quality of players, handling the difference in league. But obviously, initially, it was fantastic. And I think, like I, like he said and like I said, you know, there was a little bit from their numbers that suggested that they were overperforming. You know, they didn't necessarily uh, create the correct amount of or or adequate amount of chances to be winning 4-0 or 5-0 as sometimes they were um but you know at the same time by that same token of overperformance i think it you know by the same token they are possibly underperforming some of their some of their more recent performances obviously they were 4-0 up in the in the river derby against uh, Schalke and then they drew 4-4 and and there was a red card to PRM Aubameyang there so I think there is an element of of just like really wayward variance with this uh with this Dortmund team that's possibly down to the to the style of football you know starting to settle in uh with those players it wasn't the exact same that it was to to, to Thomas Tuchel and maybe perhaps some of that early performance was down uh to that to the, to the previous manager's style of play still being with those players but I think it's going to take a little bit more time for his sort of very meticulous Ajax type of play to really settle into all the players because it is very aggressive in terms of you know it, it, they love to possess the ball but they also love a, an aggressive counter press and I think it's set you know teaching these players all these things very quickly and maybe violently moving from style of football to to a completely different style can sometimes dishevel these things so it, it's kind of difficult to say what's going wrong with Dortmund but if I had to put my money on something I think it would be that transition what about Atletico Madrid, Dave, knocked out for the first time in the last five years by someone other than Real Madrid, who eliminated them from the competition in the past four seasons, finishing third in Group C behind Roma in first place and Chelsea as runners-up. 
I mean, they're still in the title race domestically, but in Europe, where has it gone wrong for Diego Simeone? I don't think there is a. I don't think they are doing that well in La Liga. They're missing so many chances. They should be winning games four, five nil this season by with, by the amount of chances they're creating. But they're just not taking them. Griezmann's been in pretty bad form in the last two games in La Liga. He's been good. He scored three goals in the last two games, but he's only managed six in the league altogether. You take that with Angel Carrera, it seems to get himself into such promising positions, and then either the keeper saves or he doesn't hit the target. It's sort of like this problem with Dortmund. Not Dortmund. Sorry, Atletico at the moment. The way for Costa to come in. And the likes of Kevin Grimero, I just think his confidence is gone because he knows that someone big is about to join the club and he's going to lose his place. So for Atletico, honestly, all it was was getting to the knockout stage and then Costa would come in and they could even go on to win it with that combination of Griezmann and Costa. But unfortunately, that sort of lack of chance conversion and lack of ability to take their chances has meant they're now in the Europa League and they're going to win that instead of the Champions League. And what about Monaco, Chris? Last year's semi-finalist smashed by Porto on Wednesday night. 5-2. Of course, they sold so many of their key players in the summer, but they're only four points worse off domestically but in the Champions League. It's been a disastrous campaign. Massively so. Um, I think that's been one of the things that has both surprised and disappointed me about this, this Champions League campaign is, is the fact that Monaco dropped off so significantly. But then I think it, it's, it's almost expected, and I don't mean that to dis, disrespect Monaco, but you have to look at the the sheer scope of change that they've undergone during the the summer there, with you know the likes of Mbappe leaving, mm. Bakayoko as well, who was very central to to what they did in in the heart of midfield, driving the team forward, those kind of things. Mendy, who I thought was a, a fantastic attacking outlet. There there comes a point, I think, any team that that operates with the the sort of mo that um, Monaco do, in which you buy a player, you sort of evolve them and, and develop them and then sell them on. There does come this stage where it's almost too difficult to, to maintain a system where you keep finding replacements that seamlessly knit into the squad. And I think, look, they've made some very good additions. I like Keita Balde, for example. Falcao seems to, to still be finding the net, which is a good thing. But overall, I think everyone expected this drop-off, just not to, to the extent that it has been. And I think what they've, they've found in, in coming up um, against opposition like Besiktas and, and Porto and, and Leipzig this this season, is they found teams, I think, firstly, that, that kind of know what they want to do as a team and what Jardim specifically likes to do. But also they're missing that huge game-changer that is Mbappe. Um, this player that could, I think, play in a, a variety of different spaces and positions, contribute in a number of different ways to the attack. And, and that has left them just lacking that little bit. And in the same way that I think they had this surprise factor um, last year, I look at someone like Leipzig and see that same kind of unpredictability to them that I think uh, that maybe caught Monaco off guard a little bit in, in this competition. Another big name, Nico, dropping into the Europa League are, of course, Napoli. Um, Maurizio Sarri's men finishing third in Group F behind the winners, Manchester City. And Shakhtar Donetsk, who progressed ahead of them to the knockout stages. Uh, surely Napoli should have finished second in this group, Nico. They only managed six points in this group stage campaign. Yeah, um, but then, you know, as you're mentioning there, the, the other team that was a real big surprise played, you know, 
equally uh, equally as good football in this group you have three three teams that play very similarly but just on a little bit of different levels and last night we saw the defeat uh, to Manchester City which is one of their first in ages which isn't something to really panic about the, I, a lot of you know auxiliary players were played Tosin Adebayo was in there in, in the defense and Yaya Toure who hasn't played in a while or rarely sees minutes was in there um, but I think they offered a blueprint as to how you can beat Manchester City I think that's the best way to beat Manchester City and I think you know these three teams as I mentioned they play very similarly they play very compact football and where Napoli started to to lose out of this competition is when they lost to Shakhtar when they were outdone in their own you know in their own football by a team that could simply play it better and I think also what doesn't really help them is the and they're starting to see the effects of this in the league as well but the um you know their inability to have depth and I don't know if I some people were claiming that um you know no one should feel bad for Napoli or no one should feel bad for for Saudi specifically because it's his fault in in the sense that he hasn't done enough to rotate but if you look at Napoli as a club and their financial policies and everything that they've been able to do on and off the pitch they don't have near as much money as Juventus or really any of uh the clubs that are around them in in terms of the Champions League they don't have that kind of cash to be spending because Seti is just so far behind uh, you know a Premier League side for example like Crystal Palace is probably far richer than than Napoli just that's because that, that's how the finances work out um, and so I wouldn't really put it down to him that he doesn't have that many options to put forward this enigmatic style of football that he's been able to succeed with for, for so long um, and and his inability to, to replace someone like Gulam through an injury uh, is an unfortunate thing um, but I don't really put it down to him. So yeah, it's unfortunate that they are not in the Champions League anymore. But we were mentioning all these fantastic teams: the Monaco's, the Dortmunds, the whoever else, and and it's going to be a really exciting Europa League campaign because of that. Right, that is the Champions League action reviewed. Then let's move on to part two. It's the preview of the biggest game in the world this weekend. The best team in England against the second best place team in England, I guess, Dave. It's the Manchester Dark. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Adam, do you want to keep your horse shit to yourself? You know, Manchester <laughs> City going furthest in the Champions League and then the second best team versus the first best team. You keep those uh... opinions to yourself, all right, buddy? Man, Man City, the front Man City is this now called. <laughs> Dave rambles on for 30 minutes and it's the front Man City. You're right, Dave. <laughs> Listen, right, it all comes down to this. Manchester United against Manchester City. The title race could be over in December, apparently. Um, 
if Manchester United do not win this game, Dave, they're out of the Premier League title race. It's official. They're going to be 11 points behind, I believe. <laughs> they're out of it. <laughs> they're out of it. That's, I'm, just, I'm just repeating the hyperbole. I'm, I'm reading the national newspapers over here. Right? Um, on the one hand, we have uh, Manchester United, Dave, Jose Mourinho's Manchester United, who are now 40 games unbeaten at Old Trafford, uh, equaling a club record set in 1966, of course. Uh, the Reds will set a new standard if they do avoid defeat this weekend. Um, can they win it, though, Dave? How would you like to see Jose Mourinho set up in this game? I think that's the most fascinating question going into this, mm. how he's going to how he's gonna look to neutralise and beat City, because essentially they need to win to close that gap. They do need to win. I think it's a, it's a game that a win really pulls them back into the title race, and then with the game with Tottenham in two games' time, that puts pressure on Manchester City and flips the scripts in a way, and it, you know, it gives United a lot of confidence. But I think what United need to do is they need to park um, a bus backwards in a way, with five players at the back, four in midfield and one up front. I think the teams that have done well against City recently have all played that system. You think of West Ham, Huddersfield, and the one that has just lost my mind that they played. Southampton, yeah. Basically all played five at the back, four in midfield, one up front. And I think it worked quite well. And, and, and watching those games back, there was a lot of periods where City just couldn't do anything with the ball. You know, watching those games on five times speed because City, they're boring. You know, the ball is just going around, pinging around their sort of back five players and there's a lot of recycling of it, but there's not a lot of penetration. I think if United can do that and counter-attack, I think that's a big thing. You think about the teams that have caused them problems. West Ham, right? They've conceded the most goals in the Premier League. City nearly struggled to open up the score against them. You think Huddersfield, they've conceded a hat full of goals. Southampton as well. So I think with the best defence in the league that Man United have and attacking certain areas, for example, Carl Walker is very susceptible for pressure. United could counter-attack with Jess Lingard, with Martial, with Lukaku. That's an angle where United could go. Of course, when they're breaking, they need to be a bit smart. You know, they need to have that balance. They need to not throw everyone forward. It needs to be, you know, thinking about the, the counter that City could throw on them, the counter-punch. So it's all about control for Manchester United. And when the, op- the opportunity opens up, you know, Tony Marshall, Jess Lingard, they're the guys that are going to be cutting through, you know, the likes of Vincent Company and both Carl Walker and mm-hmm. the rest of the City players, really. So it's it's a pretty simple game for United. Get the ball, score some goals, win the title. What about midfield? How do you solve a problem like the absence of Paul Pogba? How do you expect Jose Mourinho to accommodate for the missing Frenchman? Well, I think it obviously he's a massive, massive, massive loss for United. So when he's played this season in the Premier League, United have won 87.5% of their games versus 57.1% when he's not been there. So the stats are pretty big. The other stats as well, when Pogba's been in the side, United have created 100 chances. That's in eight games. In the seven games that he hasn't been in the side, United have only created 49. So basically, United are twice as creative with Paul Pogba. Um, I think it's going to be a big problem. I think... Uh, the balance of that midfield against Arsenal was awesome. You know, having Nemanja Matic pretty much playing as a, a fourth centre half, just blocking, clearing, having Paul Pogba as almost a free man. You know, Aaron Ramsey was atrocious in a defensive sense, and he allowed Pogba to just dictate the, the play on the counter. But the two assists that he got were both fantastic. You know, the dribbling Koscielny on the outside, and then playing it across to Lingard. But the other one as well, the fantastic, you know, waiting and have that patience at the end of the box to just let the Arsenal players come to him, and then he, he plays it out to Valencia. So he's going to be on. A huge, huge miss. But if there's one guy that can come in and, and you know jump into a Paul Pogba-sized hole, is Big Marouane Fellaini. I think he, if Fellaini's fit, obviously there's there's doubts on Physio Room, my, my local news source. Um, they're saying that he's doubtful. But that's similar with David Silva. I don't really believe the 
the managers anymore after last week when you know Matic was supposed to be out and saying with Lacazette. I don't, I'm, I'm not. But I'm not. Jose Mourinho, into said, again. Jose Mourinho said he was coming out and telling the the truth. Zlatan, mm. maybe Fellaini, maybe Matic. 100. percent He's playing. He's injured, but he's playing. He said. Um, I, I think it's gonna be interesting to see how Manchester City line up as well. Nico, as Dave says there, Pep Guardiola may have been telling a little white lie about whether David Silva's going to be fit for this game. He wasn't exactly convincing in the press conference when he was trying to suggest that he had an injury, although he never specified where the injury was or, or what it could possibly be. How do you expect Pep to line up in this game? I think there's less pressure on City, but how do you expect him to, to approach this one? Well, technically speaking, just to cover that first, David Silva is technically always injured because he has to receive cortisol injections into his left ankle um, mm. because he faces some sort of cartilage problem there. So technically he's constantly injured. So anyway. he's doping. He's constantly doping. <laughs> no, cortisol oh, injections are a very he's legal a thing. Disgraceful <laughs> anyway, behavior. So I think, I think the difficulty here is exactly that. If David Silva like really... <laughs> if David Silva really isn't fit, that's a huge problem because as Dave and I have underlined, Kevin De Bruyne is great, but David Silva has been a key man in Manchester City's attack this season. He's that, you know, little uh he he's essentially, you know, of the two free eights, he's a little bit farther forward. He controls, you know, the 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 spacing and the passing, uh more the final balls in, into the thir- into the final third that are are a little bit more decisive. Kevin De Bruyne can have that delivery from out wide and from different areas like that, but I think in terms of breaking teams down that are going to have a compact defensive structure, David Silva has been there time and time again this season. So he's an important player. And if he misses out, I think that those sort of duties start to fall to Kevin De Bruyne because we'll undoubtedly play a midfield sort of duo of Ilkay Gundogan and and, uh, and Kevin De Bruyne in those situations because I don't think they're going to switch it up from the 4-3-3. I think it's going to be the Fabian Delph. John Stones is a huge miss because, as I mentioned before, their buildup is is a weakness. If you start to target their buildup, if you start to pressure Kyle Walker so that the pass to Fernandinho, which is usually the pass that connects the defense to the attack, um, is a little bit wayward and somebody can jump on that, then City start to have some major issues. Um, so I, I think that's where that's the area in which City have to be excellent. And without John Stones, I think it's difficult uh, for them to be excellent because Vincent Company isn't the best passer of the ball. Uh, Elia Kimangala is certainly far, even farther down that list, and I don't think someone like Tosin Adibarayo, however you say his name, um, is is competent enough in his ability on the ball to to sort of circumvent that. But I think that will be the area of the game where where Mourinho might say, you know, you have to beat us in this area, and I think they can be competent enough in a high press um, to break down City. Now, if they don't. If they don't go for that sort of game plan, if Mourinho is not confident enough in his players' ability to execute consistently a high press that will give Manchester City trouble, then I think that is the kind of game that plays into Manchester City's hands because they will undoubtedly want something a little bit more on the counterattack. And if they employ the same tactics that they did against Arsenal, where they were a little bit less compact, they were a little bit less aggressive in order to have that just that little extra bit, that extra man, that little extra 5 to 10 yards, on the counterattack, then City will slice right through them because they have, you know, the same if not more attacking output on the offensive end than, than Arsenal did. Than Arsenal did. Um, so I, I think it's really in in that dynamic of the game as to what approach Manchester United takes that the the game will sort of lie. Mm, I kind of disagree with the, the pressing and the high the high energy. I don't think that's the case. I think there's phases where you need to get, you know, as I mentioned, Carl Walker, but I also think. 
if United sit off in their 4-5-1, they basically need to wait for the penetrative pass, the pass that goes to Aguero's feet, that you know Pep Guardiola's built his philosophy on that vertical pass to get City through the thirds or get Barcelona or get Bayern. Basically, what United need to do, like Southampton, they did it quite well. Basically, you wait for that pass to come and then you counter-attack down the flanks. Because of the nature of City's system with the fullbacks coming inside, there's so much space to break into. And if, of course, Martial is quick, Walker is quick, that is going to be a real battle. Because as soon as United wait for that pass to be played, that pass is played, you know, Aguero's touch isn't the greatest in the world. United can surround that, nick the ball back, and then spring a ball over the top. That's where United need to consistently be looking for that. And I think it's it's going to be all about game management and not being too scared if it's uh, 70 minutes and United still haven't scored a goal. It's all about the fans not being nervous. It's a big thing in football. You know, in these big games, when fans get nervous, the players can feel that as well. So, you know, if you're going to the game on um, on Sunday and, and you're in the United, then don't get worried about be, it. Be nervous. Just, just be relax. very nervous. Absolutely <laughs> relax. Nervous. Mourinho what? knows what he's doing. The corners is another situation. But if you want to see more of the corner analysis, you might as well check out my YouTube channel because it's a little bit too technical to over a podcast, to be quite honest. Sorry. <laughs> Enough of this tactics chat than a nerd nonsense as, as Craig Burley would say well, you keep this shit um, yourself forward. Uh, Dave give me a score prediction then if you're not nervous uh, what's your uh, what's your shout uh, I'm going to go 3-1 United 3-1 oh my wow. gosh wowee okay um, Nico you got your own prediction 1-0 Manchester City we all know it's going to be 1-0 or 0-0 or, nil nil or something like that so I'll go for uh, I'll go for a score draw, um, but we come now to uh, combined eleven. I think let's put a little combined together eleven. Uh, combined eleven together. This. Manchester this City, Manchester again. United. Um, it's been doing the rounds on Twitter. I mean, you got a little bit of heat for it, Nico, as well. We'll, we'll get into that. I thought maybe you know if you guys disagree, we'll, we'll, you guys can argue each other's case, and I'll decide based on the, the little arguments you make. Right? Hopefully you're right, like, like a game of two halves. That means I'm going to argue every position for United yeah, was, just for the bounce. What a fantastic game of two halves. Show. What a genius video idea. Oh, I wonder man. who could have uh, who could have possibly come out. There you are. I'm, re- I'm reigning champion. Can I'm you uh, as the champion? It's true. It's very true. Can you agree on a formation though? Is it have you got any preferences for formation? 433. Three. Yeah, I'd probably agree with the 433. Four, three. Okay. I think so, that will work. Let's go for goalkeeper then. Um, we've got Here we go. Bravo or Sergio Romero. Oh, and there's Edison and David what? as well, I should say. Um, which, oh, he's got some banter this lad. Which keeper are you picking, Dave? Dean oh, Henderson. Oh, I'm not sure he's on the squad list anymore, but off the current um, roster. No, no, I'm, I think David De Gea, I don't, I don't think this is a debate, Nico. I think you should acknowledge that this is not a debate. Um, I think Edison is a very good keeper. He's good on the ball. He's very, very good at coming off his line, but he's not David De Gea. David De Gea showed against Arsenal why he's world number one right now because of those goddamn saves he made. <laughs> okay. Okay. okay, what are you saying? So I, this is what I've said to about the 80,000 furious Manchester United fans. that I don't know why they follow me, but they do. So I, so I, if you ask me to, 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 to put together a combined 11, I w- like to watch football in a certain way. I like to, mm. like if I was a manager, I'd like to play my football in a certain way. There's no doubt in my mind that David De Gea is the top two, along with Manuel oh, Neuer, yeah. oh. the best shot, shot stoppers in the world based on pure goalkeeping ability, you know, reflexes, diving saves, whatever you want to call it. But the way I like to play my football, the way I, I like to watch football, Can see goals. I, I like to, Build up, like have, a, have a have a build up. 
so that there is space further down the field. You can create certain attacking opportunities if your goalkeeper is proficient with his feet. And in that sense, if I'm going to play my football, I want to choose someone like Ederson, someone who is an extremely proficient goalkeeper. What do you mean? David No, you meant The best long pass accuracy in the Premier League last season. He said 14. David De Gea. 14 shots in one game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 14. It's going to be 15 this week, Nico. All right, Nico, I'll give you one chance to convince me you've picked Edison talk to me did I not just did I not just say I I think that the ability that Ederson has to not it's not just about long pass distribution it's not just about booting it down the field to to Marwan Fellaini or Lukaku it's the ability and the understanding that's I think something that people don't really understand is that Joe Hart probably has the technical ability to make a 30 20 40 yard pass whatever or a five yard pass it's the understanding of the build-up play which player to get it to in those situations and I think Aderson in a lot of those situations, especially being a goalkeeper, if you want to have a high line, his ability to come off the line in those two situations, the passing ability and, you know, being aggressive as a goalkeeper. Aderson is, I think, second to none, really. David De Gea is a little bit, uh, I think, anxious in those situations when it comes to playing the ball with his feet and being an aggressive goalkeeper. But as a shot stopper, as, as somebody that stops the ball from going into the net. I would say he's one of the best, you know, ever possibly. I, I think I think you've got one one line there that I agree with that probably Edison is better off his line because he's a nutcase. The rest of the goalkeeping uh, on his, with the ball at his feet, saving mentality, claiming crosses. David De Gea beats him in each one of those categories. Hmm, Nico, I think you put forward a good case. You put it forward coherently, cogently. I enjoyed it very much, and I think you know uh, it deserves to be considered. And not dismissed out of hand as if you were a biased city idiot. Um, but at the same time, you are a bite. No, um, I think we're going to go for for David De Gea. Um, as good oh as Nico's argument was, rigged. I just you know, I, I, just because I don't want to be attacked on Twitter. So because of my shameful cowardice, we'll go for David De Gea. And as well, you know, he's, as you said himself, he's he's the top two in the world. I understand. We'll, we'll see if he how he's going to fit into this team that we put forward. But um, let's go for, for right back then. Who are we going to go for a right back, Nico? Talk to me. It's a, it's a difficult one because I think Kyle Walker, both Kyle Walker and Antonio Valencia are extremely you know, athletic players. They're, they're probably pretty decent technically. I think Kyle Walker is probably a little bit better technically, um, but it's mm, not much right. of a difference. So I w- if Dave really wants Antonio Valencia, then I wouldn't mind, but I, I would probably say Kyle Walker. Dave? I think the only problem with Carl Walker is that Pep Guardiola insists on playing him as an inverted wing back in, ga- wing, wing back in games, and it's just not where he should be going. The best Carl Walker is the Carl Walker in that final third that's stretching the play in a horizontal sense. So for that reason, because Pep Guardiola thinks he's a good ball player, I am going to go with Antonio Valencia, but just because Antonio Valencia would run through a brick wall, he can score bangers. He started scoring bangers this season. Hey. Obviously, he's going to score a banger in the derby. So for me... Antonio Valencia with his physicality, okay. his ability to tackle, to run, to just be an all-round good guy as well. I are think, gonna, Adam, that's the big you, thing. Are you going to make the Adam, argument for Adam, any Adam, City Adam, players? Let me just you, no? Adam, let me just remind you. Carl Walker, what did he do this summer? Um, you know, he Turned earned... his back on a project that you're, that's close to your heart, Adam. I'll just leave you with that. <laughs> He's a fantastic player. That has Carl nothing Walker. to do Carl with a fantastic player. I'm not, right I'm not, now. I'm, I'm, do you know what? I'm going to put uh, Carl Walker Nico, in. Nico, there's a reason of... why I'm champion of a game of two halves. I'm choosing Carl Walker because that was a, a low move, Dave, to try and use an emotional... Yeah. <laughs> 
an, an emotionally traumatic time to, to to try and nah. I'm going for Carl Walker. Listen, I'm, I, that's not in the conversation. Um, Carl Walker, we're going to go for just because of Dave's uh, chat there. Let's talk about centre backs. <laughs> so give me a centre back that you want to put in this team, Dave. Victor Lindelof. Wow. Uh, okay, Nico, who are you going for? I would I would disagree with that only because I think if we're gonna go if we're going four three three we're gonna have two center backs obviously and I would say one of them should be Eric Bailly because I think he's a very good defender he's a very aggressive defender and I like what he does but if I'm going for you know that partnership of maybe read and read and aggression or one goes and the other one have to read the game or one has a more aggressive tackling ability and the other one is more proficient on the ball i would prefer john stones to victor lindelof and then have you know a partnership of john stones and eric bice oh i like the sound of that would you, can you live with that dave mm, can you can you really though dave you well i was just just thinking about my you know my my target i was giving myself a few seconds to really get that argument together in my head um, and I think first, first, first and foremost, Victor Lindelof has been written off by every single fan on, on football Twitter, and they were very wrong. Um, and I'd just like to highlight that, that Victor Lindelof is a high, high-quality defender in terms of his ability on the ball, in terms of his ability to cover and be aggressive. I think there's weaknesses still that he needs to work on, but all round, Victor Lindelof will be one of the best centre-halves in world football. Um, and the only reason why I said Victor Lindelof is just to make that point, Adam, because I feel that point isn't made enough. Um, but I would it's, agree, John Stones... I'd, I'd kind of go, this season, honestly, I'd go Otamendi over Stones. I've, I, I really like what Otamendi's become under Pep Guardiola. I think on the ball, he's, he's really underrated. And watching the, the City games back, I've been watching a lot of City recently to you know to find out how we can beat them. Um, obviously, going on MUTV to send Mourinho a message yeah. of how we can beat these bastards. Um, but in terms of uh, what he does, it's, you know, the, the shape recently... Company sort of holds. Otamendi moves into midfield, sits next to Fernandinho. The two inverted fullbacks come in and they make this platform of four players, and it's really nice. And Otamendi's always stepping out with the ball, always completing passes. Um, I think he's completed the most passes of any Premier League defender this season. I think he's aggressive. He's making the right decisions this season. You know, last season he was a bit hot and cold. This season, for me, he's been perfect. So if I were to go with two players on form and fitness, because Eric Bay is out injured and John Stones is out injured, maybe you're looking at an Otamendi. Victor Lindelof pairing would be the, the one to go with, or Otamendi, maybe Chris Smalling, but then Chris Smalling has always got a mistake in. Same with Rojo. It's a difficult one. I think there's, it, it would be Vincent Company. Vincent Company, Otamendi would be the pairing if Company again was fit for the whole season, wow. but again, he's in hot and cold, injured now. Um, so I'm happy to go with Bay and Otamendi. Okay. Uh, Bay and Otamendi. Are you happy with Otamendi, Nico, or should we go for Stones? Yeah, I'm happy with that. I can live with that. Okay, we'll go for Otamendi. We'll give we'll, we'll base that one on form. Uh, left back. Dave, are you going to suggest Ashley Young or are we going for Mendy or Delph? Who, who are we going for here? I, I, think, I think first up, um, it would be Benjamin Mendy. But again, he's been injured for the last few weeks and he's out for the whole season. Benjamin Mendy as a fullback is unbelievable. He's a brilliant fullback. He's a, you know, the new, he's a new age fullback. I think that's how I'd, I'd describe him that, you know, what, managers want in that final third what the best managers want is they want the cutbacks they want to build a team where cutbacks are how you score goals your Barcelona style your Guardiola style and Mendy is that as a player why he was so good last season was because he had that ability to, to cross and it worked with in a two-striker system that was very counter-attacking and aggressive in Monaco and now it works at a possession-based system at Chelsea but the problem is he's been injured 
and Ashley Young has emerged as the Premier League's best left fullback. Wow. So unfortunately for, for me, Adam, it's Ashley Young, but it would be Mendy if he was fit. <laughs> unfortunately, indeed. Uh, Nico, Ashley Young, can, can you abide by that? Someone who is also bald and far better at left back is, uh, is Fabian Delph. So, you know, make that. Absolute horseshit, mate. Watch him get <laughs> wow. tired of this weekend, yeah? <laughs> wow. Um, no, I can go with Ashley Young. Okay, we'll go with Ashley Young. Free man midfield, then. Uh, we should we also say that, we, like, we should select players who are able to play this weekend. So, okay, so by each we switch. I think that's the big thing. I think I've seen a lot of a lot of these teams going around the internet from the BBC, and most of them are playing players that are like, injured. Should we switch by for Lindelof then? Should we switch by for, for Lindelof? Is good, yeah. Okay, so let's go for midfield then. So yeah. we can't pick Pogba now because, of course, he's he's suspended. That's what we're saying. Yeah, he's no, no, because he's, he's not injured. He's fit. No, no, no. He's we can't pick him. We can't he, he pick him because he can't he, he play. He would in this be game. available to play if Hector Bellerin didn't think he was playing cricket and did a long barrier. <laughs> Honestly, Hector <laughs> Bellerin that is, that is the most, that is the that most Manchester United fan thing. I was to blame someone that their their career could have ended because someone wanted to listen. Why are you doing that? Listen, who's taught Hector Bellerin to tackle like that? You taught him because if you are, you've got to get sacked as a coach. You've got to get rid. You've got to just delete yourself as a coach if that's what you're telling a player to do. Let's not go so back to, to go and do a long barrier. Again. Let's not talk for, about this. Listen, for brevity's sake... To drop gonna, your leg I'm, behind. For brevity's sake, I'm going to put Fucking Paul Pogba in the it's team. Fucking unbelievable. He's a Premier League footballer. Paul Pogba's in the team, even though he can't play. He's technically fit. And as I said, for brevity's sake, for, for the listeners' sanity, we'll put in Paul Pogba. Uh, either side of him, though, in that three-man midfield, who could we have? Dave, have you got a suggestion you'd like to see alongside Pogba? You well, I think Nico agree with me here. I think that the, that before you move on, Adam, we need to have a defensive midfielder in there, which either goes Fernandinho or Nemanja Matic. Nico, your thirty seconds starts now. I think you have to go Nemanja Matic. I was incredibly impressed with him against Arsenal, not having watched that much Manchester United. Um, you know, it's not just him being a big defensive midfielder. He's not that slow, archaic-looking, you know, guy that that is just kind of Marwan Fellainiing across the pitch. He is athletic. He is gifted. He blocks shots that he should block. He's an extremely gifted passer, and I I am really impressed with him. Twenty five. As, as, as much as I as much as I like Fernandinho. Twenty nine. 30. Bang! I reckon Go. Fernandinho should get into this this team because he contributes to Manchester City in their build-up. Not only can he receive the ball, but he can take it in very dangerous areas where he can get City moving through so the you're third. you're stealing my, like... my build-up point. That's what you're doing. <laughs> well, you've got to do it, right? We're, we're playing Game of Two Arms. I've got to argue the I point. See. I don't think so Fernandinho thievery, is better than Matic, but we've got to play the game. The, the thing. Nico, okay. you're eating into my 30 seconds. You've obviously played before. You've got 10 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. Okay, you got 10 seconds. Fernandinho, he's Brazilian. He's got the flair. He likes to put two feet into challenges sometimes. So that is why I want to throw Fernandinho ahead of Nemanja Matic into defensive midfield. And the correct answer is Marouane Fellaini. No, we'll go with uh, we'll go with Matic. We'll go with Matic. I think unfortunately Nico used the the dark arts to interrupt you there. He sort of you know didn't let you make a. a it was nice. I liked it. So it we'll, was go, good. we'll go with Matic. We'll what, about, what about the other side? We've got Pogba, Matic, and who else, Dave? De Bruyne. Um. So the we've got De Bruyne. You got Silva, Marouane Fellaini, of course, and yeah, the Herrera. Yeah, who are we going for, De Bruyne or Silva? Uh, you see, I don't think Silva's injured. I think it's just deployed by Pep Guardiola, so I'm considering him fit. David Silva, um, I'd throw Kevin David Silva ahead, ahead of De Bruyne, yeah, 100%. Would you, go for that? Would you go along with that? I think, you know, we're playing a three-man midfield. We need those players that are going to be going to go two ways, and I think as much as uh, Pep Guardiola has brought 
both Kevin De Bruyne and David Silva along as more competent two-way central midfielders, I would say that De Bruyne has more athletic ability. He shows in his statistics, if you want to go that way, Dave, this season, you know, he's a more competent central Nico, midfielder as Nico, opposed to Nico, like an inside forward. You had me at De Bruyne. You had me at De Bruyne. Listen, right forward, talk to me. Who's one on the right side of the attack? Raheem Sterling. Oh, do you agree with that, Dave? Shit. <laughs> Shit you know, I, I, I'd, 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 I'd argue it. But unfortunately, I put a video out on my YouTube channel maybe a week ago saying he was the most improved player in the Premier League this season. I just don't think I can stab myself in the back like that. Stab yourself in the... Yeah, you wouldn't want to do that. We'll we'll go for Sterling. I think we can all agree on Sterling. What about the left side of that attack? Who do you reckon, Nico? Who do you want to go for? Anthony Martial. Mm, Dave, you got a, a counter to that or do you agree? We've got to have a we've got to have a debate, haven't we? So I'll throw I mean, in the striker. We might have a debate about a striker. Marcus Rashford. That's a good debate. Marcus wow, Rashford. Okay, I'm go going on, for. Dave. You've got twenty seconds for everyone's sake. Talk to me about Rashford. Yeah, go. First up, Marcus Rashford as a left forward not only gives you stuff going forward, but he does in a defensive sense. Consider his four interceptions against Southampton earlier on in the season was the most of any player at St Mary's. But what he does as well in an attacking sense, he is fantastic. He's creative. He's skillful. Nine. He can score goals. You take his goal Seven. they scored against CSK Moscow. Oh, Five. bully! Out of nowhere! Four. What a goal! Three, two, one, Nico. I think, if you look, I think if you're looking at Marcus Rashford as sort of a, in a 4-3-3 on the left-hand side, he's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. He's more of a forward. He has more space to run into in those situations. He's going to be better. But Anthony Martial is a pure out-and-out winger. He can be defensive in that sense. He's more comfortable on the flank. He can take players on in those areas in extremely efficient ways. He, he's just a better all-around wing player. And I think that's why you have to go with Anthony Martial because he is that is his most effective position. And this team, that's where he's going to be the most effective. Ooh, tough one. I think uh, let's go for Martial. Let's go for Martial. I, I think as good as Rashford is and, and as promising as he is, I think Martial's a more dangerous player. And I like the argument Nico made there. Uh, finally, we come to the forward. I think right now he's in form as well. Of course, of course. Exactly. We're picking up on form and, and injuries, etc. Mm. We finally come to the forward position. Zlatan, Lukaku, Jesus, Aguero. Who are you saying, Dave? Oh, this is simple. Of course, this big Rom. Romelu Lukaku, Man United's number nine. Simple as that. Nico, do you disagree or, or can we concur? 100% disagree. Whoa, okay. Who are you saying? Gabriel Jesus. Okay, 20 seconds coming in. Make your, make your case for oh, Jesus, shit. Nico. Make your case for Jesus. Go. So Gabriel Jesus, he's a, he's an extremely gifted striker because he has the passing ability, as Dave touched on earlier. Aguero's first touch isn't that great. Romelu Lukaku's first touch isn't that great, as we've known. So if you want to have that passing ability of sort of a competent central midfielder, then you have Gabi Jesus. But then you also have the striking ability of some of a very proficient striker, and Gabi does that. He scores headers, he scores volleys, he scores left hand, left foot, right foot. He's a great player. Two, one, Dave, Lukaku. Well, this is simple. Let's look at the stats. This season, Lukaku in the Premier League has got eight goals. Uh, Jesus has also got eight goals. But the, where is Lukaku underrated is his assists. Four assists compared to Gabriel Jesus' two assists. The pure stats do not lie. But also what you're going to get from Lukaku is you're going to get an ability, a striker that's got the ability to play as a target man, false nine, nine. an advanced forward that can run the channels, but also has that ability to win the aerial duels. 11 last weekend against Arsenal, which was more than the Arsenal team managed combined. Boom. I think he outstanding. You there, Nico. He did a stat man, and I, th- I think we're gonna go with Lukaku. I like that. The all round play, the build up, the assists. We're gonna go with Romelu Lukaku. So, our final combined 
Manchester City, Manchester United team is David Hayer in goal somehow. Uh, Carl Walker on right back. Victor Lindelof and Otamendi in the middle of the defence. Ashley Young as the left back. Matic alongside Pogba and Kevin De Bruyne in midfield. Raheem Sterling on the right of the attack. Anthony Martial on the left and Romelu Lukaku up front. Uh, so more Manchester United players than Manchester City players, surprisingly enough. That's um, correct. Wow. Let us know what you think of that team. It's already on Twitter, so you can give us your abuse there. But thank you so much for listening, guys. That brings an end to today's podcast. Until Monday, when we'll be back to review the Manchester derby, either Manchester United's heroic win or Manchester City's defining victory. Dave, where can the hole find you? YouTube, find it. Statman Dave, and you'll be able to see a tactical preview of the Manchester derby. Oh where you'll be able to look into the good stuff. So I'd check that out as soon as it goes live. And it may be live right now. You never know. Mm, do go and check it out, guys. And Nico, where can the whole find you? They can find me, as always, at Nico underscore Omoralis on Twitter. Lovely stuff. Guys, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Boltwood. You can find us all at The Front 3. You can also find Chris at K Hennage as well. So do go and follow him there, too. We'll see you on Monday. Until then, enjoy the Manchester Derby. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com <laughs>